So in this episode of the podcast, we are talking about assessment, assessing our students. We have as a guest, Vicki Lance from the theater department here at SAM. Thank you for joining us, Vicki. Of course. Uh, I'm happy to be here. So my first question for everyone is what is active learning for you? Um, so I am a theater generalist, which means I uh, have a PhD in theater research and I do a lot of research based work, um, but I also uh, direct and develop performances. I do something called devising and I teach pedagogy. So in all of my classes, I am spending a lot of time thinking about the ways in which students are engaging with the material of the class to think about the ways in which live performance um, affects uh, socio-political concerns, cultural concerns, or how do you make a live performance? So there's always a component of um, helping students understand that everything they're getting in the class will affect the way they interact in and around a staged performance. And staged performance are really broad, but a lot of the times that means an audience sitting in a theater watching a play or a musical uh, that's up on a stage. Though I teach them about performances that are way outside of that. Um, so the act of learning for me comes um, really easily when I'm in a pedagogy class where I'm teaching drama-based pedagogy to people who want to be teaching artists or teach in a classroom, and they have to think about active learning on their own with the students that they will uh, work with. Um, and so we're always up on our feet and we're always doing building lesson plans, executing lesson plans, working with kiddos, doing outreach. Um, so that that feels easy. It's in the structure of the class um, in experimental or stage movement too. again, all of the work that I'm doing feeds into uh, active performance. So they have to be up on their feet. They have to be practicing these um, different types of physical theater exercises, internalize it, get it in um, to their voices and their bodies. And then we learn how to piece together and create live performance. Uh, in my history, dramaturgy, theory, crit classes, how active learning comes into play feels a little bit different um, because you're getting so much content and you're trying to think about how to then have students share the content that they're trying to absorb. So one of the things I've been incorporating in those classes are um, I've been doing a lot of podcasting, which is what we're currently doing. <laughs> so I um, have public podcasting uh, where the students start practicing just by talking to me, but then it eventually leads up to them putting, I use a website called Buzzsprout, um, but it's a public podcast that they put out information on uh, and they have to think about scripting and music and how it sounds and what sort of audience is it journalistic? Is it intimate, which is a, a framing device for podcasts? Is it um, conversational, interpersonal? And so they have to put all of those things into place by the time they're recording. 
And one of the reasons I have started doing things that are outward where we either are giving a public performance for kiddos or we're podcasting, that there's some element in each of my classes that is going out into the community because it relates to um, anti-bias in the classroom. If I'm the only person, their teacher, judging their work, then it feels really hierarchical. So if the students have the opportunity to uh, work together to collaborate and produce work that then extends to an audience beyond just me, it's the idea that there's more equitable practices in the work that they're getting or the responses from a wider range of people than me. It's not like this is a super popular podcast, but my colleagues listen to it. They can send it to their friends and family. So it does extend beyond um, me uh, by myself uh, trying to assess student work alone. Um, so I have very uh, performative based learning uh, practices in my classroom, in all my classes. The podcast idea is um such a cool idea. And I love that the students are making it not just for you. Mm -hmm. um, do you bring that into your grading somehow what other people's feedback is? Uh, so that's a good question. I, um, it's hard to find when it's a very public forum, the ability to do that. Um, so it depends on the project for the podcast. I haven't quite worked out cause there's no like typing notes feedback. Um, so I haven't worked out exactly how to get completely outside feedback from that for my dramaturgy class. They also podcast and each of my dramaturgy students is paired with a faculty member in my department that is a director or designer. So if those director or designers listen to the podcast, they can offer me some thoughts and reflections. Um, and it's one of the things I'm trying to figure out and work towards. I also, they also do, um, uh, they make videos or they do live public performances. So with the live public performances, I do think about the audience reception. Uh, is the audience processing, understanding? Are there moments of clarity? Is, um, are the students responding to the audience and finding moments where they can really, um, present the sharpest best version of this performance that doesn't mean it's like the most uh you know the pinnacle of their performative skills but are they responding to the audience um so that's a little bit harder when it comes to drama-based pedagogy and working in the classroom with another teacher i take teacher feedback and i use that to help with the grading process um, and the same is true when I do experimental and devising colleagues come in and they uh, watch what the students are doing and they give me feedback that then I can give to them and I incorporate the feedback into um, I often record my voice so they hear me talking to them um, in their feedback and their their grading. It's really hard to to go say here's a very public performance. Uh, get feedback from the public and then translate that to students. Yeah. I could see how that would be hard to bring back. I think your field has a, so I'm a mathematician. And so like when a student is writing calculus for me, then I'm like, I say to them all the time, pretend that I don't know what you're doing, but it's, it's really hard for them to like 
put themselves in that mindset where they're like, but you do know what I'm doing. Like I can just write some random symbols on the page and you know what they mean. (laughs) Um, But you really have that for your students to say, you know, like people coming to the theater might not know what you mean. (laughs) Yes. I've even done perform. I've directed shows and performances if the students are doing something that's a little more political or if because devising means you're developing as a group and they're fueling the ideas. So it's all student generated work. Um, I say people I've directed shows where people walk out of the shows and that's a reaction and it's not um, uh, it is just their personal reaction to the work that they're seeing. It's not based on how I grade, but it's it's super responsive. Right. So you have audiences coming in with no understanding of what they're about to experience. Uh, and then they're processing processing it live in front of the people performing it. Um, and that happens uh, when we go in and work with kiddos in a way that can be really surprising. So I try to prep the students to say anything can happen with kiddos in a classroom. We one time were at a lesson at Scott Johnson where in the middle of the lesson, they were like, oops, it's picture day and just left the classroom. And so we had to stop our lesson and we waited. Um, quietly and then kids came back and we picked it up again and I I have to make adjustments and the the teacher of course is like oops and and here's my feedback and it's not a it's not a big issue in terms of the students but in terms of how you prep like the students have to prep for contingencies they can't imagine because audiences are live and and um, reactive and you can't fully control how, how they're going to react. Active learning is like that too, right? Like you as the professor are sort of doing active learning and you know, your students aren't an audience in the sense that, but you know, it's sort of like to do this thing, you have to give up control of the classroom, which I think is difficult Mm -hmm. for some people, Yeah, but maybe, maybe not for you because you're, you're trained in that. <laughs> Cause I've been doing it a long time. Yeah. You know, I do that in my history classes every week. Uh, we do discussion and pre pandemic, it was discussion leaders and live. And so I, um, let, I give them the material they need to understand the play and the social context. And then I have to sit and let go and they sort of watch how much I let go. Cause I really struggle to um, not jump in, but the goal is to have the students lead. And I'm always some, I'm sometimes really surprised at the things they want to focus on in a play, you know, a play about um, apartheid and truth and reconciliation. We just had a conversation about it and then we wanted to talk to, about why the actor was in his underwear. I was like, that is, that just is such a, a, a thing that they're focusing on that to me, I would never have thought about, but for them, it's l- unlike any performance they've ever seen. And so that's what they want to spend a part of the time on. Part of why I invited you was because we had talked about the podcast thing, which is super cool, but was there anything else that you had um, in mind that you wanted to share? Well, I love the podcast. I've I've started incorporating it into more than one classes. And I've also done, you know, there's a lot of interesting YouTube video essayists, um, people like Lindsay Ellis, who have developed like cultural theories that they try to apply. And, and I incorporated that into my theory crit class. And I think it was successful for the students who had fully 
digested the the theory that they were grappling with but um so that becomes a real marker of of student success in that moment because um cultural theory is hard right so if they're talking about um uh you know uh queer theory and performance if they don't fully understand what the idea is of gender constructions and judith butler's ideas and and can extend that to a moment of of pop culture it it can fall apart um uh but the students who had already apparently shrek and marxism go hand in hand this is something people have already explored <laughs> so the students who were dealing with marxism and wanted to talk about shrek had a pretty good handle on it because this is already part of the cultural conversation um uh one of my students who did disability studies um is a, a disabled uh, person and so her perspective was very personal, but then making sure they're wrapping theory into that. So each each um, one of these YouTube essays became a um, sort of experiment in, can you internalize a theory enough when, when these are students who are really new to big meaty theories? Um, and I think, getting through the video and, and saying some of the theory, saying some of the theorists, is a mark of success for me. I, I think that they did really well. Similarly to the podcast, um, the podcast, what I'm looking for is can they talk uh, conversationally about some very serious elements of playmaking? So for example, um, a student who is doing, I have two students right now doing a podcast on a play called Question 27, Question 28, which is all about Japanese internment. Many students growing up in Texas do not get a, a strong background on what internment was and, and what took place in the Texas high school system. It's regional, right? I grew up in Oregon, so I had a better sense of it. Um, so this play, one podcast is is saying here is here is a real breakdown of how they moved Japanese people out of California and up into the Colorado Wyoming area, um, and it was very fact based, thorough research uh, and really uh, focused, which was great. And then the other one is a conversation with a student's family where the student's family submitted questions. They said, I don't know anything about this. Here are all our questions. And she's having this really casual conversation. So both become extremely effective listening projects. Uh, but one is like, here's, here's some music. Here's a fact. Here's a quote. Here's another fact. Here's another quote. Here's my outro music. And then this other one is like, welcome back to the family. Sit around the table. And, you know, Ashley's going to say a question because she she hadn't heard of this fact or this thing. And both are equally effective methods of uh, showing that they are learning and processing the material. Yeah, that's a really cool idea the student had, right? Because um I think the beauty of this podcast idea to me is that students then see how much you have to understand something to explain it to a podcast audience. Mm -hmm. But then the student with her family has gone to another level where she's like yeah. doing the explaining 
on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> In a really clever, engaging way, because you hear live people saying, oh, I never, I hadn't even thought of that before, or this is not something I thought about, or, um, you know, it, it becomes such a personalized experience. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, and so all of them have to work and to various levels of success. But this is a marker that I'm looking for is have you internalized the information so it feels um, it doesn't feel bogged down in reading a script, but instead it feels like I'm actively telling an invisible person or real people that I can see in the room. Uh, these important things that help me understand, you know, Christian missionaries in Hawaii or the abolitionist David Walker, like those are the type of things they're trying to convey in 15 minutes, <laughs> right? Uh, they do three 15 minute episodes in that class. So yeah. that's so cool. What have you learned from this assessment? Um, I've learned that Strangely, I uh, rely more on rubrics than I had had in the past with some of my other assignments for my drama based pedagogy, they get like, they get the business, they have to meet with me before they enter a classroom of, you know, first graders, they they walk through the lesson with me, they lead the lesson, they come back, we assess again, and then I give them two page typed how to how to think about teaching right that's that's they're they're carried through the process um but it's all very personal and a lot of my assessment and feedback tends to be me talking uh recording myself or typing up some feedback but i have found for the the podcast or the videos that i'm having them do that rubrics really help because it means that they can see my expectations. I can give it to them from the beginning and they can see that I'm not judging it based on how well they perform um, or how receptive everyone is to their ideas, but how they're able to blend content and structure so it is a listenable experience. So they have examples, they have scripting examples, they have um, guidelines to follow, the, but they can see the rubric from the beginning. And then on each episode, I give them feedback, feedback, rubric. So they get a feedback for the first episode, they get a little bit more. And then hopefully that means by the third episode, they have a real handle on their successes and they can um, uh, strengthen their their. Uh, uh, whatever the content is or whatever the format is by the last episode. I think doing things more than once becomes important. And I found that in other classes where I've just said, oh, midway through the semester, you're going to do one podcast. Um, they struggle to know how successful they are until it's already done and dusted. Um, so I think doing a type of project more than once becomes key. So your idea there is that it's really important to give to for the assessment to be formative at least once or twice, right? So that it's not we did this thing and then it was over yeah. and I, and I didn't get better at it. Yeah, yeah, and part of it is because theatrical practice is training. You're training your body as an instrument, you're training, um but that's also true with the researching, right? I try to explain as a dramaturg or a scholar that you're training yourself to do things over and over again, because you're working 
to continue the process. You're working to um, uh, improve, not perfect, because you're never going to reach some sort of pinnacle of, of perfection. And um, with the physical theater work I, I teach, it's habit. You have to do it multiple times to fully digest the experience of, of creating a physical theater piece. Uh, when it comes to research or history and, and theory, you just have to process it a lot because it's a lot to take in. Um, but one of the things that I have found is that um, I try to frame things in terms of the what we see in the professional world. In the professional world of theater, dramaturgs, which is a, a someone who studies the text and helps theaters uh, have a understanding of text, the play, um, they go on radio shows, TV shows, and podcasts to talk about the work. So I want students to understand podcasting is now part of our uh popular culture. It's it's part of how we present things. And they may be doing this sort of work. Um, and it doesn't happen just once. So how can you practice those skills? Um, how do you take what they're doing in their individual personal lives? Like, they play around on TikTok. Um, so I use something called Flipgrid. Um, and I can embed it on Blackboard and they can do short videos of a similar sort of energy and style. Um, so if, for a fun reflection at the end of history, we're doing, do you remember the 1980s Reading Rainbow uh, book reports? Yes. <laughs> I love those. If you like, if you really like peas, you're going to love this book, right? So, so um, they're going to do that with um, non-Euro-American plays, right? So they have to seek out global theater, but they get to play around. I said bonus points for the 1980s uh, styling and that VHS, because uh, you can do that on video apps. So you can make the lines and uh, make it like a real classic, uh, like 1988 is the year we're gonna <laughs> aim for. Um, but just as a means of playing around with things they already have on their phones or that they're interacting with, um, because we can't separate, we can't say oh, our, our, our work is is not part of public engagement or, or the popular imagination because it fundamentally is. So I try to find ways to bring in some of those elements of um, culture and, uh, and um, what we might see as more less formalized culture, right? Like um, apps and uh, social media and finding a way to bring that in. I used to have students um, uh, use their Twitter and Instagram to tweet as characters from plays they've read. Um, and it was always a lot of fun, but I think students were like, I have to make a new account. I'm not going to use my personal social media to, you know, be head a gobbler for two weeks. I'm like, people <laughs> love it. Who doesn't love a tragic Ibsen character and the voice, you know? So, um, so finding ways like that to say your, your personal social media, popular culture is all wrapped up in, in the work that you can do to be a productive, um, for me, theater artist. It's such a great way to be relevant to your students, right? Like we all have to sort of make an attempt at being relevant to our students. Um, and that's a really great way to do it. 
And part of that for me is that theater reacts to cultural moments, right? Mm -hmm. And so historically that's true, but also these are theater artists that hopefully will be out in the world reacting. And so trying to find ways to constantly think about what is the current cultural moment? How are we reacting to it? Um, how does it change the way we use our social media or use our, our public facing selves? How would you, what would your biggest piece of advice be to, if, you know, if someone's interested in putting this in their class, what would your, what would you say to them? So what I would say is that things like Blackboard have lots of means to do some of the work I'm talking about, but taking it outside of Blackboard to a public audience, I think becomes really important because um, students need agency to be invested in the work. Lots of students will do all their work because they want a good grade or because it's habit, but to actually want them to invest time and energy in the work, how do they have agency and ownership over what they're doing? And one of the reasons why I do um, podcasting or other elements of public facing work is to have students create their own investment and agency because I remind them all the time that this is a public thing. This isn't just you're doing something for Dr. Lance or Vicki. You're not just, it's not just me. It is going to go out into the world. Um, so how invested do you want to be in that element of yourself that you're putting out into the world? And the hope is students can find uh, ways in which to then very much invest in the project or invest in the outcome of the project. Um, and so I have found um, there are lots of websites or apps that help with this sort of work. I use something called Buzzsprout for the podcasting, but there are lots, there are tons of this, this sort of stuff. Um, I also pay for a couple of hours um, each month. Um, and that's just something I do personally to make sure students don't get panicky if the little red bar says you're running out of time. Um, and I, cause I make them all editors on my, on my podcast and, um, and making something that feels outside of the classroom, something that's for the university or something that's for a community, because the more they can see ramifications of their work, the hope is the more invested. That's not true for all students, obviously. There are plenty of students who are gonna miss turning in a podcast or who are going to sound like they're just reading, um, less so in a live performance. When you have real humans, small and large, because I do outreach with kids and uh, performances for adults, um, it's harder to phone that in. Uh, you see it every once in a while, but it becomes when they see like tiny children looking up at them, all of a sudden they really try to create something uh, exciting uh, for their experience. Um, or if they've ha invited their parents to a class performance and their parents drove two hours to come see, you know, the one time only performance of the experimental theater class, they, they, have so much control and agency and investment in that moment that that's what I try to feed into things that um, are not on a stage. Um, and so finding a way to make it outward and finding a way for students to understand that 
there are so many so many potential people that can invest in their work that they should spend that time investing in themselves. That's great advice. It's hard to be outward facing. We get busy in a semester and so we we tend to contract and students tend to contract. So mm -hmm. um, if you anticipate that and build it into your semester to say, you know, in in week seven through nine, we're outward facing, um, mm -hmm. then it can help them build to that moment. Yeah. And I think if you if you said like we're always outward facing, that's probably stressful for them. So mm -hmm. If you, yeah, build, you know, build, building to it here in the future, other people are going to be. Yeah. And you just say it a lot in a way that says, uh, you know, oh, you turned in your first um, introduction to your casebook. That's so exciting because at the end of the semester, I'm going to give it to your directors, the full casebook. So step one, done. Great. And so finding ways to remind them that people outside of you, the instructor, are, are going to get this and, um, you know, you know, not to, I've done this before, like, okay, we're in week, uh, week three of six to rehearse this piece and we're doing okay. But by week six, other humans will look at it. So just think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and it works. I mean, by week six, it's, it's, uh, I just did this with a, a kid's show and they really created an awesome piece of Zoom theater. That's cool. So exciting. Okay, um, thank you so much for your time today. The Engaging Podcast is brought to you by our lovely Engaging Spaces. Through our competitive grant process, faculty have the opportunity to reimagine their teaching spaces and create a classroom that can allow for substantial engagement. So what does that mean for you as an instructor? Well, you get to teach in these classes. We currently have classrooms in the Lee Drain Building and Evans that are available for reservation. And by the end of summer 2021, we will also have a classroom available in Farrington. You can reserve these spaces for the whole semester on a reoccurring basis or just for a specific class where you need a flexible space. Each classroom is unique, so check out our website for the specs that each room has to offer. We have everything from rolling chairs and movable tables to individual whiteboards for students, whiteboard walls, and all the technology you could imagine. You can find all this information and more on our website at www.shsu.edu QEP. And if you would like to schedule your class, send us an email at engaging at shsu.edu. The topic of this episode is student assessment. We have as a guest, Jennifer Didier from our kinesiology department. Thank you for being with us, Jennifer. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Our first question for everyone is what is active learning to you? All right. So active learning to me is getting our students engaged in the lesson through uh, experiences and application to try to increase their learning. So tell me about a student assessment that you've developed to facilitate active learning. So I have um, a, a few different ones that I will do, but, and so I'll talk about kind of the general, I guess, 
format of what I'll do in the classroom. Uh, but typically it's a guided discovery type activity. I like to use guided discovery in the classroom where the assignments sort of walk them through discovering answers that will eventually lead to bigger answers. Uh, but often I also incorporate it into a, an actual lab or like data collection in the sense of like they are doing something and making taking measurements and then trying to look at those measurements and then going back to the theory or the concept or if it's math in, in the math based stuff, the formula that would match up and looking to see, you know, did what actually happened over here match up with what what the concept says should happen. And so uh, in in that setting, in the classroom setting, it's definitely more of a formative assessment that we're kind of walking through. It's um, but those will match up to then things that are on the exam. So for for one example, uh, they'll do they'll set up a bunch of cones, and obviously I'm how to modify this for COVID. But previously they would set up cones and they would time each other walking, you know, fast, slow, you know, different different uh, movements through these kind of zigzag cones, and then we they would have to identify or calculate and measure and all this the distance and then also the displacement and so then the speed and the velocity, and so to look to see you know, how, how do those measures compare? When are they more similar? When are they less similar based on how they set up their cones? I give them kind of a base idea, but nothing um, specific. So they have some, some flexibility. And so that's one way that we go through to then go back and be able to talk and compare distance and displacement and speed and velocity and vectors and, <laughs> and scalar. And then they'll also do one with say dropping uh, different balls, but they have to drop them all from the same height. And so, and then calculate time. So there's human error. So, you know, they're never great at getting the same time on all of them, but we set it up to where then we can talk about why, you know, why didn't they get the exact same time or what did they think should happen if their times are, are not the same, you know? So we, we talk about some of that. And then I also usually incorporate, you know, they'll, they drop them onto two different surfaces, like maybe a piece of foam versus the carpet or concrete or wherever we are, and then compare how that the bounce height and you know <laughs> coefficient of restitution. And so it, I, I sort of try to. They have these experiences, but then we link them back up into the classroom. But then it's going to turn around, and then on the exam, you know, they're going to have a little diagram of some little zigzags, and you know, estimate distance and displacement, or speed and velocity. So it's, I, I do link it back to a, a more uh, summative assessment, even though, say, the assignments are typically more formative and discussion, discussion and experience based. In the cone activity you referred to. Do you give them a few tries so students will just like go around the cones the, like the normal way and then they just get wild with the cones? <laughs> so there's actually on on their spreadsheet where they're collecting their data, it, they have a, a column where they put description of gate. So I've had people walk on their hands <laughs> if they are skilled in that. 
Um, but yeah, they can walk slowly. They can try to walk quickly. Uh, you know, so we're sometimes we've been outside if we're inside then we're sometimes restricted more for um, space. And if we're in the hallway, but, um, but yeah, they're allowed to, and I tell them to, you know, use kind of different gait patterns uh, so that then, you know, and to note that. So then we also talk about the speed and velocity. Like we should see the differences just from the different gait patterns as well. So, yes, but I have seen, yeah. Hand, walking on hands is probably the, the craziest that I've seen. Kind of a side question. I'm curious, how did you manage with, with the pandemic um, that same activity? So what I ended up doing is I had, um, I drew out like, you know, kind of enlarged what would have been just their sort of diagram to go by as they set up cones or a general idea. I then enlarged it to one, one full page and I brought marbles and they, they walked the marble with their fingers around the cones and timed it. And it was the best that I could come up with for uh, to still perform the the activity, but with less moving around um, right. like they normally are. I think that's. I mean, it's still a pretty cool idea. That's still very active without getting too right. close to each other. <laughs> so, what have you learned from these assessments? So I've learned that it definitely helps many of the students get that light bulb to turn on, say, when they see see what's going on or when we then go back to it and talk about, you know, so so say on the ball drop, a lot of times their times are when it's supposed they're supposed to take their tallest person from the exact same, you know, put your arm in the same position, drop it you know, to where you're dropping that same height that you've measured. But there's I mean, there's human human error, uh, and some are a lot more variable than others. But when we talk about, okay, though you should have been able to be fairly similar based on gravitational acceleration and all of this going on. Um, so I've, I've learned that, that there are a lot that, that those light bulbs do come on and they, they understand, but I, but I've also learned that there's still some that even that's not, not helping. And I don't know, just because there's the math based, I sometimes think it's, so some of that math anxiety that that some people have that it still sort of is yeah. fighting <laughs> fighting that um, or if they're if they're not I don't know as as engaged as they need to be because a lot of times these are obviously in in a group setting um, I try to keep my groups you know three to four at most just so that there's pretty much they all have a task then. They all right. have to be measuring something or they're the person dropping it or they're the person walking or that, you know, whatever it might be. So, um, but if they're still not, I guess, engaged cognitively in making those connections, then, then I still seem, I still feel like there's a couple that I'm, that I'm losing. Mm-hmm. I definitely think it helps, helps the, the greater majority. I, you know, as a mathematician, I see that math anxiety all the time. And I think that really the, the only thing to do about it is talk about a growth mindset a lot. Um, and then with students that I have a more, a kind of a better um, relationship, like, a you know, I've talked to them more. 
um, I'll say, don't talk about my student that way. So like a student will be like, oh, I'm so bad at math. And I'll say, don't talk about my student like that, <laughs> which is a, I stole that from a friend in grad school who would, you know, like if I said just something disparaging about myself, she would say, don't talk about my friend that way. Oh, very nice. So I do that. Yeah, that's sometimes good. I might students. <laughs> do that to them as well. Feel I, free to I, steal. I, yes. I'll tell them, you know, from day one that math is only going to confirm the concept. So if you're holding a ball off the ground and it's not moving, but then you let go of it, it's going to start moving faster. And, and so then we can mathematically determine how fast it's actually moving, say right before it hits the ground, but it's just going to confirm what we know conceptually that <laughs> gravity is going to speed it up. You know, or if we throw it up straight up in the air, it's not going to just keep going. It's going to slow down. <laughs> and so, you know, when I when I tell them and, I, you know, when I've taught statistics and I've taught, you know, any of these physics based classes and I've, I've always said this, I'm like, you can explain math with an essay. Like you can give me an essay answer to to a math question if you're struggling on the math side, but you you understand the concept. And so and that's why I really try to emphasize in the class you know, and go through those concepts, you know, that it's, if you understand these concepts, then the, you know, the rest, the rest kind of just fills in the, fills in the, the blanks. But if you're, if you're not, not, you know, learning um, those basic concepts, then you're going to struggle even to know is your math on, you know, on track. And so I tell them, you can estimate, you can, you know, you can give me estimated answers. You can give me, you know, a written you know, I'm not sure what to do here, but I know, you know, as the ball goes in the air, it slows down. As it comes back down, it's going to speed up, you know, like they can, you know, or time up and time down, you know, like they can talk about these different things within uh, a concept of say projectile motion without trying to plug it into what appear to be complex formulas for them. That's a super useful idea in calculus too, that the, the math can only confirm what you understand. Right. I'm going to steal that line. <laughs> I had a side note. I had a best friend growing up who was our valedictorian, you know, went, got a degree from UT Texas in um, electrical engineering and made one C all the rest days, you know, missed one math on the GRE, all this kind of stuff. Like her math was through, you know, through the roof, but always we would study together and, and the common sense side or that, you know, she's like, you know, it's like I would ask her and she could quick do the math and then go, oh, the ball will slow down, you know, like, <laughs> but if I you know, just on the just the basic concept, I could explain the basic concept. You know, if I you know, whether I'm going to plug it in and pop out the answer as quick as her, I could explain conceptually what's going to happen before she would do the math and then go, oh, yeah, that's what's going to, you know, so we we kind of joke because it's like they, they go hand in hand like, you, you know, it's just going to confirm it. So. Yeah. I feel like that's must be what I look like to my students. <laughs> You're like, wait, let me see what the math says. <laughs> let me just do that integral real quick. Yeah. That's a positive area. <laughs> so, but I mean, in, in kinesiology, and I tell them this, I'm like, we're, our, our jobs and careers professions are not that we're just doing some math and popping out numbers and handing them to somebody. It's that whether we are doing the math or someone else is, 
we have to look at those numbers and say, oh, the performance is going to increase or, oh, that's going to, that could lead to injury or this need, you know, so we need to be able to interpret those numbers. We need to understand, you know, so, you know, a, a computer or someone else can do the math for you if, if that's not your strong point. But in, you know, in kinesiology, if we don't know if those numbers are, you know, helping hurting performance or helping um, or leading to injury, then, then that's a problem. Like that's, that's where we um, need to be able to apply that. And so that's where I try to get them to make those connections. I mean, it's, it's true for all, probably all of our disciplines, right? Like it, if you can do the work, great, but it's not, there's no point in doing it unless you can like interpret it or communicate it or use it for something, <laughs> you wow. know, it's, what good is being able to take a derivative if you don't know why you're doing it? Or... <laughs> right. Yeah. You have to know what is this information telling us and why is it important? And, and then it, at the, you know, that basic level, when I tell them, you know, estimate what the answer should be before you even try to do any calculations, because the other side of it is you can, you know, it's like it's in statistics, you do your, correlation you know it's like oh it's 312 and it's like oh no <laughs> that doesn't happen like oh no <laughs> i think maybe you missed it something in the calculator or the computer you know but it but if you don't even know okay conceptually this can only be in this range or this value can only fall under here or you know then even when you're solving you know problems you're not going to know when there's when there's a mistake you know or when it's like kind of in the research side, when we look at our data, you go, wait a second, that, that looks really weird, you know, and you go in and, you know, especially if it's then human, human entered data, oh, someone, you know, put a decimal there or didn't put a decimal there. And, you know, so you get this crazy value that is not an accurate value. It was a, it was a human error versus an, a true outlier in your data. So, so again, you know, having that ability to make those connections of what should we be seeing here and what are we seeing here and, and where to go. So that's a, a good way to, um, to sort of circle back to assessment or your students to assess themselves first, right? They, mm-hmm. you know, they think, okay, this is what it should be. Then they do the math They're Then they're like, well, okay, why was I totally wrong? Or what did I get exactly right? And Mm-hmm. And so that's, and I'll, I'll show them that just, you know, as we're solving problems, we'll, we'll go through and I'm like, okay, you know, time down should be about what, like, how can we estimate it? it well, if we have time up, but it's in, you know, an uneven surface, okay. You know, is it going to be greater than or less than, you know, if we came up with half a second on this side, should it be greater or less than half a second? Okay, let's write down less than half a second. You know, okay, if velocity was nine meters per second over here. Should it be greater or less than nine meters per second? And, and kind of go through and just I'll say, you know, put all your estimations. Okay, now let's actually go calculate and let's find out, you know, that, blah, blah, blah. oh, 0.35. Okay, is that less than 0.5? Oh, yes, that's what we said, you know? <laughs> and so trying to get them to, to do that, you know, where they're, what yeah. is the, theory say and and what should happen and then let's go ahead and actually find out the real answer and see if if we're on track that's really neat so what advice would you give to faculty who are interested in 
pursuing these types of assessments? So I'd probably say start small, <laughs> start with it. If you haven't been doing it uh, a little bit at a time and then the, the circling back is critical. So just, just having them do the assignment and come up with their numbers or, you know, do some calculations or, you know, as a homework assignment or however you do, and then not bringing it back up, um, then they definitely don't make that connection because I made that mistake in the beginning. So it's like, didn't you see what was happening? Like we did it. It happened. I watched you do it. Like how did the light bulb not come on? Uh, so so you like we have you have to come back then. Um, so you know if you just start with a, a small activity and have them work through it and come up with you know they think should be the answers, but then circle back to it and then I'll circle back to it again. You know as we come up to another part of the chapter or another dis you know part of a discussion, it's like okay, remember when we did that activity and you know wh what did you see happens and and a lot of times on these because they'll have like their data and some calculations, I say keep it in your folder because we're common you know we're going to keep referencing it throughout this unit. And so uh, we're even a lot of times past that, but <laughs> definitely within that unit. And so it's like, oh, pull it back out. You know, what do you, what, what did you think happened? Or, you know, what happened when you did it? Okay. You know, this, this concept says, this is what should have happened. You know, where do they match? And uh, it seems to me that students at, maybe it wasn't always this way. And I, but they start, they've started at least to expect those connections that, you know, if, if you say something, what, like, you know, today my topic is this, and then they never see it again, then later, inevitably, someone will come back to me and say, why was this thing even here? <laughs> why isn't it on the test? <laughs> right. Why did we do it if you weren't going to care about it later? So, yeah, I think that's, Great advice. <laughs> I've done that too. Right. Well, um. I mean, in the beginning, I'm thinking, surely the light bulb went on. I mean, I why? <laughs> but but you you have to verbally get them to say it, or you to to say it, and rain, you know something where making making that connection. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jennifer. And thank you for having me. I enjoy doing active learning in the classroom. So engaging podcast is brought to you by Odyssey Grants. Are you looking for some active learning professional development out there? Well, we would like to get you there. So we invite you to apply for an Odyssey Grant. This travel grant will support you for up to $2,000 as you engage in active learning development. Check out the application on our website at www.shsu.edu slash QEP. In this episode, we discuss student assessment. We have with us Edward Swim. Thanks for being with us, Edward. Thank you. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about assessment. So our first question is, what is active learning to you? Right. So um, for me, when we talk about active learning, I'm usually thinking about how to improve the um, ability of students to um, exercise their own agency and then develop their own authority um, about the subject that we're studying in class. So instead of it being 
um, just me that's the authority figure in the classroom dispensing information and taking all their agency away to think for themselves i'm trying to like get my students to accept the role of being responsible for their own learning and and developing their own own agency and, and what it means to to develop their own learning uh, on a subject and then become authorities right i want them to feel like that their goal is to become an authority on the subject that we're studying great so uh Getting toward that goal, tell me about an, a, a student assessment that you have developed. Right. So um, that's that's sort of a long story, but let's just say that I've been dabbling in little ways to try to improve, you know, students' active tendencies in in my classroom, especially in calculus, for a long time. And um, so the thing that I've kind of gotten famous for was sort of an accident during the uh, the pandemic. Um, uh, Taylor Martin and I had been working on this portfolio assessment strategy for our calculus classes because we wanted our um, we wanted our our assessment methods to kind of match up with the way things were going in our classroom. And so, while the standard you know lecture notes, uh, quizzes, and and homework and tests is maybe appropriate for the non or the lesser active classroom, I feel like I think that whenever we're, we're doing things differently in a more inquiry-based uh, environment in class, I feel like there's better ways to assess what students are learning than just uh, continuing on with, with new classroom methods, but then like going back to the exam is almost like a crutch on how to assess what they know. Um, so I wanted to try to come at things with, you know, um, a, a lot of different ways for students to demonstrate what they know, right? I mean, if I really believe that the goal is for them to become an, an authority on the subject, and I really believe that their agency and how they think about it and how they construct their own knowledge is important, then they've got to have some tools at their disposal to demonstrate to me that they really know what they're talking about that might not be the same as, you know, pencil on paper exam. Um, so we were working at trying to build that and we were, we were, we had some, you know, starts and stops and failures on our, on our path. And then of course, um, uh, the pandemic hit and everything changed about what we were doing in some sense, right? Luckily, because of the way I was running my class in this, in this very active and collaborative manner, it was pretty easy to get students to log on and still do these small group participations, um, even in the, the electronic setting. But the, this kind of unwieldy um, document that I'd been trying to get them to build um, before all of that for the portfolio, and I was not really happy with it to begin with, it just got worse, right? Like the, the cumbersomeness of tr trying to give them the tools that they needed to build their portfolio, and then the, the headache to grade it just got really overwhelming for all of us. And so I kind of had to find ways to, to skate and, and, and let them off the hook on, on a few things um, towards the end of that semester. So over the summer um, of 2020, after all of that, I was thinking about it a lot. And, um, and I realized that one of the best ways I was figuring out when students really knew something was um, in an environment kind of like this, where I was just sitting one-on-one -on -one and talking to them. And, and I would ask them a question about something and they would have to try to, you know, talk about it on the fly. Um, you know, building on something that they already knew, but kind of talking about on the fly. Okay. So for this problem, this is how I, I would, I would handle things. And so just a little light bulb went off in my head and I was like, I should make them record their portfolio as a video. And so, so that's what I built in, um, in fall of 2020 in our calculus class. I had them build, uh, basically it was like four different 
video pieces um, that viewed together are like a portfolio assessment of what they learned in my calculus class um, based upon each block of subject material. And um, I feel like it really gave students the opportunity to shine at what they were best at um, and, and show me that they really knew something, right? I really focused on how I wanted them to show me that they had made a mistake on a particular kind of problem in the past, but they knew how to correct that now, right? And that they had grown as a learner. Um, and, and so it's kind of like extra bonus points uh, whenever they really do a good job of that part of it, right? Like just showing that here's, a, here's an objective and I'm gonna show you that I understand how to, how to, how to meet this le learning objective. That's one thing, you know, yeah, but then you can get like the flashing stars and, and glowing bonus points if you like really show how you've grown as a, as a learner about that subject um, over the course of the semester. Um, and students liked it. Um, for the most part, right? You have some people that don't really want to participate in a lot of stuff, especially when it comes to assessment. There's so you're not going to make, right? yeah, you're not going to make everybody <laughs> happy. And, you know, some people like legitimately suffered from a little bit of stage fright, right? You could tell that they were not terribly uncomfortable, sorry, not terribly comfortable uh, being in front of the camera and, and having to record it and stuff. And so some of them, I could give them some general advice, right? Like that was the nice thing about having in pieces, right? Like it's either first a couple of videos and then give them some advice on, on what they could do to, to be more comfortable. Some of them are not very natural at how to build video content. You know, some of them are just all-stars and they, they took it and ran with it. Um, and, uh, and in my class this semester, um, it's really just kind of a capstone event. Um, just, there was a lot to, to build in and do in, in this is the third semester of calculus that I'm doing right now. And so there was a whole lot of stuff to cram into it in a fully online course. And so I scaled back a little bit and it's really just a capstone video that they're doing at the end of the semester, but still, um, I think it's going well. Are there, um, like little formative things along the way, like quizzes and, and such? Yeah. So like every... Everything that we do in my class is is formative assessment at some stage, I guess. Well, I guess that's not entirely true, but all like the actual doing of math, not just like the reading and understanding and watching and sort of stuff. Um, all the stuff that I ask them to do is a formative assessment. So basically like every single lesson module in my online class right now has a formative assessment piece where they're using software uh, combined with what we're the, what we talked about in the main lesson materials to, to get them to build out um, a solution to, to something and show me that they understand not just the, the concept, but then they can implement it in like a real software situation. Um, so that's where they, that in, in exams, to be honest, I'm, I'm still giving exams as kind of a way to, I'm trying to assess how well the, the portfolio assessment is going to work. Um, so I'm using the exams partly to score how students are going to do in a class. But really what I care about is a baseline. I want to be able to compare their performance on exams with students in the past where I wasn't using video portfolios. And I want to kind of like get a feel for um, what does the video portfolio really tell me um, about what they really know. Uh, and so I want, to, I want sort of a neutral perspective on that with the exams. So they get exam problems, they get homework problems still. Um, and they have these little formative uh, assessments at the end of each lesson. And that gives them a, a whole laundry list of problems to choose from uh, when they build uh, their portfolios. And in particular, this semester, the reason it's kind of a, a capstone um, is that instead of having them like demonstrate mastery of all 20 objectives or whatever, I kind of cherry picked for each student 
um, the, the objectives that I wanted them to demonstrate mastery for. And of course, you know, sneaky math professor, I went in and picked the ones that I, I, I picked, I, I, for everybody, I picked one where I knew that they had learned a lot and that they could have a, a chance to really, really shine. But I also kind of targeted some things that I wanted them to show me that they had improved on. Uh, throughout the course of the semester. Um, so some things where they had, they had shown some obvious weakness in the past and I wanted them to show me that they, they had gone back and, and relearned and could do better. I don't like your characterization of math professors as sneaky. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I am a sneaky math professor and my students, my students, are, but, but I become less sneaky as we go. And I start fessing up about the sneaky things that I do, right? Like, um, like on these little formative assessments in the lesson, uh, as, at some point I start fessing up and I'll be like, so, you know, the way I really wrote this problem is blank, you know, and I'll show them how I reverse engineered it and, the, and, and try to get them to see the link. Um, like when you talk about uh, vector fields and finding scalar potentials, right, as an antiderivative process. And I, and I always kind of like try to reveal it. I don't sit there and work really hard at trying to build a, a vector field that's got a scalar potential, right? You already know how to find a gradient. I start with a nice scalar potential function. I calculate the gradient and ta-da, here's the vector field I gave you, you know? And, and we talk about doing stuff like that as a way to understand like the back and forth between derivatives and antiderivatives in that process. Yeah. I mean, I am also sneaky in that, like, um, if I have a maximization problem where yeah. the maximum is there, but it's just not in the interval we were looking yeah. at, yep. that's a good way to see who really knows what's going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so from this assessment and implementing it, what have you learned? What have I learned? So many things. I've learned so many things. Um, well, like I was saying, I've learned that even though my goal is to provide students with a comfortable environment to shine and demonstrate what they know, sometimes there's other qualities of students other than just their academic ability that can kind of hamper their performance. I think we lose sight of that a lot of times when we are grading exams, right? I think because it's just, you know, writing on a piece of paper or on a computer screen or something, it's easy to kind of depersonalize what you're assessing and to some extent, that's kind of what you want, right? You want maybe somewhat of an objective assessment of what the student wrote as their responses. But to a certain extent, that's actually a bad thing on the flip side, right? Like, I feel like um, when you really know a student and, and get a better feel for their personality, the language that they're speaking to you is a little more personal. And if you really, if you really understand what they're saying, then even though they might not have been super precise with the exact words that they spoke, you kind of get a better feeling for what it is that they're trying to convey. So like the video portfolio in particular, right? If a student feels comfortable um, talking to you in that, in that medium, then not only do you get to see the, the math that they're writing and describing for you, right? The language that they're using to describe it can help enhance what it is that they wrote. And we just don't have an opportunity to do that in exams, right? Now on the flip side, um, if they're really not comfortable talking on video, it made it worse, right? It was harder to assess um, what they really knew. Um, like I had this, I had this one student uh, actually, I've had him several times. So he was in a pre-calculus class with me in a summer term. And then he took calculus one with me, you know, pre-pandemic. And then he was in that group where we all had to make the switch to uh, remote learning uh, during Calc 2. And, um, and so I knew him pretty well. Um, and we had some common background uh, history. He's an old, old, older guy to be in a calculus class. 
And, uh, and so we knew each other pretty well. And so when I saw him start to do these video portfolios, it was odd for me because he wasn't himself. Like it wasn't like just talking to this person that I've known for a while and, and getting a feel for what he did and didn't know. He locked up so tight because he was in front of the camera and it was clear he was super uncomfortable doing it that I could tell that what he was trying to communicate to me was not what he really knew. He was just, all he could really communicate to me was, I'm very uncomfortable. You're making me do this really weird thing. I'm going to do the best I can, but I know I'm not doing very good at it. Right. Like his self-confidence went way down, even though there was no reason for that to happen. It was interesting. So what do you do with a student like that? Well, I mean, I'm not a medical professional, right? So I don't have any of that kind of <laughs> advice to give him, but, um, but I, I tried to just be the, you know, the best at positive feedback that I could. And I don't want to point out that it's clear that he is nervous because then it'll just be more nervous. Right. I, I think. And so I just tried to give a lot of positive feedback, encourage him and give just a, a couple of things that he might do differently to feel more comfortable. Um, a lot of times students forget that preparate, like being a little overprepared can be a good thing, right? Like some students just get so busy that they lose sight of that. And so I tried to make sure that people understood that like, you don't want to actively be writing during the video. You know, this is not like me recording you doing something on a chalkboard. That's not what this should look like, right? Have everything written out the way you want it. Just have it on camera and rehearse, right? This was something that they, they struggled with. And, and I said that they could take a goofy looking picture of me and put it up on the board behind them and think about talking to me and maybe that would help. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I provided them with, with goofy picture of me. <laughs> Were there multiple goofy pictures? Where can we find these goofy no, pictures? No, it's, just, it's, just, it's just one and only some people got it and not everybody got it. <laughs> and it was just dependent on whether or not I felt like that would help in their presentation. <laughs> Actually, Besides, uh, the guy oh, that was the chair here when I first started took the picture. Um, so it was this very strange moment where they were trying to put our, our, our faces on the web page back in the day. And, uh, and so he needed an updated picture. So I went in and took his picture and, and I was like, well, Hey, I, I don't have a picture for the webpage yet either. And he was like, okay. And he just kind of like flipped the camera back really fast. And so I'm like really surprised that this picture is about to happen <laughs> and doing my damnedest to, to not make it look awkward, but it was still, it was still kind of awkward. <laughs> so that's how it went. <laughs> So besides providing your students with goofy pictures, um, what advice would you give to faculty interested in pursuing this type of assessment? All right. As you know, I'm the worst person at giving people advice. So I hesitate to do that. That's not true at all. <laughs> um, I, I think that it's really important to uh, be prepared to experiment and, and be okay when things don't go quite right. And so as a result of that, I think you want to make sure that you don't change too much all at once. So like for me, it's really important that I still am re relying on those exams as kind of a, it's kind of a crutch, you know, for my standard mode of, of teaching lecture style, but I'm still trying to use that as a baseline to compare, right? Am I doing a good job or not? And I think if I like threw everything out from the way that I used to teach and just started in something totally radical, I think I'd do a really bad job at most of it. So I try to hold on to the things that I'm okay keeping the same and then make little small changes as I go. So like the first thing I, I did when I started playing with these ideas in our calculus classes here at CM 
was what I'd call sort of a project-based assessment. So most of my classroom experience didn't change very much, right? Like it was still kind of a lecture-driven format for the most part. But um, we had these projects they would work on on a, on a regular basis. And that's when they would collaborate in groups and have to like apply things in a much more real-world setting and so forth. And so I started thinking about how I could assess what they knew based upon the project instead of just the test. And so that's kind of how I started making little changes to an old format and then trying to build up um, a much more active class now, right? Like the amount of time that I spend in lecture now, I mean, obviously online, like nothing, um, but, but even in physical face-to-face -face classes, the amount of time that I spend lecturing is very minimal, almost none, um, almost every day we're, we're working in small groups and people are, are generating their own thoughts and I'm just there to help and facilitate. Um, but I didn't get there overnight. It took a long time of making little adjustments bit by bit or bite by bite, as you like to say. <laughs> One bite at a time. Yeah. Okay. That's great advice. I, I think um, if you, I mean, I've gotten that advice. I've given that advice of just like taking it slow. I'm, you know, as you know, I've been teaching differential equations and yeah. I'm, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> going to be a 15 year process to like get differential equations. Oh, it was. I want it to be. No, like full, no, full <laughs> disclosure. The first time I taught that class was 1999. Um, <laughs> so I don't remember exactly when you, when you got here, but it probably had been close to 15 years that I'd been spending some time every once in a while teaching that class. And yeah, um, I feel, I feel really comfortable in that class now, but it took me a while to get there. Okay. Thank you so much for oh, yeah. spending time with me today. Um, I, <laughs> I, our time is short and I, I very much appreciate it. No, it's um, been fun. And um, I'm really glad that so many of us have had the opportunity to do this.